This is a part two of my discussion with Dr. Gerald Verley, the prominent Dutch anesthesiologist and near-death experience sceptic. If you haven't yet seen part one of this discussion, I'd recommend you go back and watch that one first, as this is a continuation from that. The link to part one is in the episode description below. Now, when you look at this uh, book of Sabom, in which he also talks about another case where a person was undergoing cardiac massage and they measured the concentrations of oxygen, etc. Then says Sabom, we cannot explain this and it is not due to lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. This person um, uh, could not have been conscious because they were undergoing heart massage. And the thing right. is, yeah. you ask another cardiologist at the time, he says, I cannot explain this. Mm. Now, this is absolute drivel. What you have here is a classic god of the gaps. Mm-hmm. In other words, someone can, supposedly an expert, cannot explain it. Explain it, therefore. Therefore, it yeah. is impossible to explain. Yeah. And many of the people in this near-death uh, community go on that type of premise. Now, what happened? with this particular one. It's a fascinating thing because it's an application of quick of uh, Fick's equation. And um, uh, Adolf Fick was a um, physiologist in the 1860s. And he described an equation uh, describing the provision of blood to the body and brain. Now, this is a standard equation which is still used and there's nothing special about it. It's so simple. And um, <laughs> so, and um, it's never been disproved. It's just basically there. It's one of the basics, the fundamentals. Yeah. It's simple yeah. physiology. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, uh, in 18, the 1980s, um, uh, with Sabon, they did not know what was the lowest cardiac output or amount of blood that a body needed to pump before a person lost consciousness. This has been extensively studied. It's around two liters mm-hmm. per minute. Then you look at the um, measurements at the time, and um, uh, you uh, and you also know from studies of heart massage that two liters plus is readily achievable by many people. So which is why many people are conscious during cardiac massage, mm-hmm. although they may not demonstrate it. No. And then you have this uh, Pania Aware study. Now, it was an interesting study. He showed that of the 300 and uh, such like 20, 340, something like that, survivors, there were around 170 or so, around the half of that, who were willing or able to be interviewed. And that's 170 out of 2,000 plus. Mm-hmm. So, who were actually very dead. Yeah. So, in other words, um, th- this is not a very common occasion, uh, occurrence, but it does happen. But when you look at analyze the thing, you realize that around 30, 40% of the people had a, uh, were conscious at the time from the people they studied. Well, I'm sure I read that the 
on the on the aware study there was only one person out of the original number that had a uh, out of body experience who yeah, yeah correct but of course didn't see the 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 number or the whatever it was because uh, they weren't apparently they weren't at that point where they'd put the, the thing it was yeah, behind well, the thing is the question is whether they would actually do it and um uh, all would actually see it so let's mm. face it you can forget that business with the numbers but the thing is there was one or two well one or two who actually had an, uh, an awareness experience that they recounted later others were simply aware when you look at the figures of the um, uh, thing i got them and um i also put that in my website so when you look at these figures, you realize that basically being aware is not that uncommon in uh, people who survive. Mm, Why is that? Yeah. Because people who survive have generally been resuscitated more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And therefore have had enough blood flow to the brain to sustain consciousness. Yeah. Mm. They're more likely to have had sufficient blood flow to the brain to survive consciousness. What happens with oxygen starvation due to the uh, lack of blood flow to the brain? It means that basically your hippocampus, in particular CIA, one sector of the hippocampus, um, they're the larger cells, they suddenly stop working and you can't lay down any more long-term memories. <laughs> so in other words, they don't remember it. No, no, of course. In general. So the ones that do remember have then a lot more blood flow. And this, if you look at the, and when you go back to this business of um, Sabon and you analyze it, you realize that basically um, he was not aware of a lot of things. He just couldn't explain it. He did not right. use fix, fix equation because that was far too modern for him. And <laughs> as I explained to my students, well, it, uh, the Koch um, um, uh, equations for tissue oxygenation are so recent, they're not in the, t in the medical textbooks at the moment no. that you read. They were mm. developed in 1910. And <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah. and there's a lot of lack of knowledge, general knowledge in many people. I've done a lot of teaching and these types of things, ignorance is rife. And uh, that's one thing, but in addition to which, Subom did not know what the minimum blood flow was to the brain to sustain consciousness. He also did not know a few other facts, so he could not explain it, which was why it was amazing. Yeah. But it wasn't amazing. Add, add to that that Dr. Spletzer said that he couldn't explain it either, and you've got a seemingly completely inexplicable case. Yeah, and this yeah. was a case in which basically... Uh, he was the expert in this particular operation. I'm sure he's a very good surgeon. Not a problem. And the, apparently his clinic was very good. He's a very competent person. But that doesn't mean he can explain it. Mm. Mm. So, and uh, but if you look at it in another way, you can explain it. Mm. It's uh, like that. Yeah. And uh, so, with this aware, so in the AWARE study, you can explain it as well. Mm. So the information that you got from the Pam Reynolds case in terms of the timings and the procedures being done, did you get that directly from the, the hospital and the records? Nope, from the book. No? Oh, from the book. So that was from it's Michael actually Sagan. a very good description of the case. Mm -hmm. But 
if you're an anesthesiologist, you can look at it and you understand what part takes where. Occur. And with my experience, you understand which part takes where occurs when. Hmm. I was the one who pointed out to them, mostly the whole near-death community, that basically her experience occurred, started occurring before she underwent hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Which would, of course, take away a lot of the um, a lot of the veridical nature of it. No, no, it doesn't take away that. What it does is it takes away the timing. In other words, yes. a marvel of no brain flow, no temperature, mm-hmm. and hmm. that's it. So, what 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 do people uh, on the pro side of the Pamela's case say when you present this kind of, of, of thing to them? Well, they ignore it. They say um, they're very inconsistent. In the sense, uh, they say, yes, but Dr. Spitzler couldn't explain it. In other words, an appeal to authority, which is one of the weaker arguments, and that's basically their main argument. Mm -hmm. And an appeal to authority. Yeah, which is a fallacy in itself. Exactly. Mm. So in other words, but it is an explicable case. But you can go on with every one of these cases to do a, if you get enough detail, you can analyze it. Mm. So was there any, have you ha- had knowledge of any experience, say from Titus's book, um, The Self Does Not Die or any other? Because I found Titus's book and I found that to be one of the leading kind of um, veridical third party perceptions. I don't know, what's your opinion on that kind of um, The problem collection? is the book is a collection of near-death experiences, all apparently very marvellous and all apparently inexplicable. Mm-hmm. But I look at them and I see, oh God, here we have a lot of lack of detail, which could have explained it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into detail of everything. Basically, I go to a different approach. Um, the main thing is, you see, that the soul or the disembodied consciousness is supposed to be is supposed to not be affected by things affecting the body. And it's also supposed to be the repository of all memory. Mm-hmm. Now, that is fascinating. Because that means you do have tools to investigate the reality of this separable consciousness. No matter how invisible, no matter how very immaterial, you have a tool, memory. Mm-hmm. In particular, it's a direct relationship. Long-term memory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you mentioned at one point that that anesthesia, that's strange that people, if they're supposedly conscious, that they have no memory of the period during anesthesia. Uh, Now, what I said was um, that it's interesting that anesthesia has the ability to take away consciousness altogether. I think in terms of memory, that that could be explained by the variety of cocktail of of drugs that cause amnesic effects. So whether the experience took place may... If the drugs take away memory... Uh, memory is supposed to be a function of the soul, mm-hmm. but it's also um, it's also connected to the brain at that point. Which okay, but what's the connection to the brain? Don't know. We don't know. No. Okay. Hypothetically, mm. there is a connection. Now there is a type of there are three different types of anesthesia experiences which give you an illum- illuminate this point. One is conscious um uh, the awake uh, wake up test mm-hmm. 
The other is an isolated arm um, test, and the other is procedural sedation. Now, this is fascinating. Now, what's the wake-up test? When I was a young anesthesiologist in the 1980s, uh, we used to do spine surgery in the University Hospital in Leiden for people with scoliosis. That consists of laying the person on their stomach uh, under anesthesia, opening up the back, putting some long rods next to the bar spine and tire st uh, stretching out the back so that the uh, bent spine is straightened up. <laughs> the problem is that if you do that, sometimes you stretch the spinal cord a bit. And when you do that, it then says, uck, and fails. Yeah, yeah. So what was done with these people beforehand? They were told beforehand they would be woken up during the operation and asked to signify yes or no by hand grip. One, mm -hmm. grasp for yes, two for no, and to wriggle their toes and feet on command. Mm -hmm. To see if the damage was... Yes, because they'd be woken up during the operation. The pipe would still be in there, They'd still be on the high low dose of opiates, but not enough to keep them asleep. Mm -hmm. no, other, uh, no drugs to keep them asleep. So in other words, not paralyzed, high dose opiate, morphine-like drug, and not enough drug to keep them asleep. Mm -hmm. So we'd wake them up, ask them if they're conscious. Yep, they're conscious. Can you wriggle your toes? Because at that point, they're laying on their stomach, pipe in their mouth and into their lungs, mm. being ventilated, and yeah. um, because so essentially they, had, they were, so essentially they were conscious. They weren't um, paralysed, but they were painless. Yes, because of high dose morphine. Yeah, which meant that they were then calm. Yeah, and in addition to which, they were able to follow commands. Mm -hmm. And because at that point their back was wide wide open, and so the screws had to be either tensioned or less. So, and they would do this, wake them up. Practically, no one ever remembered anything. <laughs> Even though they were conscious at the time. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. So why wouldn't they be able to recall it if it's no. saved in a consciousness? Yeah. Again, unless the brain is involved. No, then we have another point. And that is isolated arm. Um, when you use an isolated arm technique, what it's done is the blood pressure, the um, arm is exsanguinated. That means uh, a rubber band around it, so a tourniquet around here. And then you can keep that on for 20 minutes before the nerves start um, um, uh, responding. Mm -hmm. Then people would then be in, uh, knocked out under general anesthesia. And then they would be asked to move their hands and to squeeze with one thing, answer questions, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, they were apparently under more than adequate general anesthesia for surgery, because the surgeon was operating. But they could respond by saying yes, no, and answer mm -hmm. questions with yes, no, and such like. Mm -hmm. Wake them up after the operation. No, they remember no, anything no. of it? Nope. Even though no. very evidently conscious during this period, mm -hmm. so it's almost as if they were—it's almost as if they were conscious, but there was no memory being saved at the time. Exactly. And why mm. do you say? And why? Because they could 
remember things from the past. In other words, they remembered that this was going to happen and they could respond adequately. In other words, the signals from here into the separable consciousness that was being transmitted properly and they responded adequately. Now, then we come to procedural sedation, which is something used to have conscious sedation, which is used very commonly during things like uh, uh, endoscopies, like colonoscopies yeah. and such like. Mm -hmm. One that I've unfortunately had experience with myself. Uh, well, there you have it. Just well, I, refu I refuse to be sedated, though. I hate that idea. Anything anesthesia, yeah, I don't well, like the idea of. Okay. <laughs> but many people, they get a combination of either propofol these days because that mm. works out quicker, is quick and quickly finished. And I'm going to do with a bit of Rapifen, which is rapid working fentanyl. Um, uh, and uh, all they used to get just plain dormica, but just enough to keep them sedated, but conscious mm -hmm. and in this state. They talk, respond to questions, remember things from the past, and when the and drugs wear out, they can't remember anything of the procedure or things that happened during that period. Mm. In other words, Despite signals yeah. from the brain and the ears and the eyes are being transmitted more than adequately to this separable consciousness. How that happens, God knows, or mm. whatever. Anyway, um, no one knows. It goes to the brain. When people give a response or an answer, they could remember things from the past. Mm -hmm. But when they wake up, they remember nothing happened at the time. In other words, memory function for retrieval was working. Mm -hmm. And all the signals coming from the eyes and the brain or wherever, whichever sensation was being tested or being asked about. Uh, that all came through adequately, but they did not lay down any mm. new memories, even mm. though the soul is supposedly unaffected by drugs. Yeah. It, no. it is an interesting thing, and memory is often a very... No, no, it's not a question of that. This mm -hmm. basically does not correspond to the mind model of people who believe in the reality of a separable consciousness, because in an out-of-body experience... Well, the several consciousness flies everywhere and remembers everything. Mm -hmm. During a um, uh, heart attack with, um, uh, or during cardiac arrest, they said people who believe in these things say the brain is not functional, therefore cannot lay down memories. In other words, the soul or separable consciousness is laying down memories, mm -hmm. which are subsequently remembered and recalled. Mm -hmm. And apparently stored in some um god knows ethereal, where some sort of yeah. material storage yeah. system or yeah or some quantum storage if you listen to the stuart hammer often and folks like that well god knows well, who knows where it is but it mm. isn't there but it's because, there yeah because what happens is after mm, mm, isolated arm test wake-up test procedural sedation no long-term memories mm which is totally inconsistent with what is being claimed as memory function by uh, people believing in a separable consciousness able to lay down memories. Mm. It just doesn't happen. So in other words, no. this whole idea, this paradigm falls flat on its face. 
because yes, one of the most essential yeah. things doesn't happen. Mm. And you would have thought that if consciousness is separate, then whenever experience takes place, the memory would be stored and be accessible. And in fact, the thing is, the consciousness was functioning normally because they were able to recall things from the past, adequately answer, mm. adequately respond. In other words, yeah. this was so the signals were all coming through loud and clear, mm. and mm. memory was being available for recall. Yeah. So at the time when they were under um sedation they had perfect memory recall of everything up till that point but after coming out they had no memory of having that experience at the time which seems to be a contradiction in terms isn't it it is a very serious contradiction Mm. so that that would lay a a problem it is a big problem Mm. for people who believe in this type of thing Mm. in fact it's one of the core things if you know a book of um uh, call of a god knows who it is um Irreducible soul. Irreducible mind. Uh, yeah, irreducible mind by he works at the um, I've written him. He also works at the same Virginia University as um uh, yeah. what's his name? Uh, Ed, Ed Kelly. Grayson. Ed Kelly. Yep. And his wife. Mm-hmm. And his now, wife. That's a big thick book. It. And he's talking mm-hmm. about Myers. And even a mm-hmm. hundred years ago, Myers said if mem- uh, the soul is not the location of memory, then you got a big problem. With this idea and in fact yeah this these three phenomena place a finger on a very sore place because mm. they Certainly, reveal yeah. that basically the soul does not or inseparable consciousness whatever you want to call it mm. does not mm. lay down any memory traces during these yes. periods and it certainly seems to provide strong evidence that perhaps the soul, if you want to call it that, cannot be the seat of memory. It's certainly not. And if it is not the seat of memory, then what is? In yes. fact, when you look at it, you find that the effect on memory is drug concentration related. And this is what happens in the brain. So mm. in other words, that explains it better than a separable soul. It's certainly an interesting thing to think about. I'd have to, have to think about it for a while. This business of the effect on memory... Mm-hmm. is one which is not not from me. It's observed by millions of doctors all over the world, every mm-hmm. day. And yes, in fact, this is why these drugs are used. It means that basically you have a very serious problem with this thing. Many people say, yeah, well, there's uh, all these properties of the soul I list. Well, if you look at these near-death experiences, you find them all. Mm. I, mean, I think the problem with having kind of the set belief that something is paranormal, you can always add new properties to it to explain anything. Mm, no, the thing is, there are several fundamental properties. I've listed mm. them in my new book. And um, if you uh, bother reading the uh, PDF book I wrote on the matter, I've uh, mm. got a free book on that one. Which mm. is and that's called what, sorry? Anesthesiasoul.com. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this explains this very carefully. And the thing is that, okay, what you actually prove for this is that if people have a separable consciousness or a soul, it certainly doesn't have these properties. Hmm. There may be something else, but as we don't know anything about it. You could posit anything, couldn't you, really? Hmm. So we don't know. I don't know. I can only analyze things which are known. Hmm. And compare them. 
to come yeah. up with the best possible explanation. Yeah. Mm. And um, it's like with paranormal powers or psi mm -hmm. or um, parapsychology. Now, mm. the thing is the speed with which um, um, parapsychology departments closed in the last few closed in the last few years is comparable to the collapse of the Russian Empire. <laughs> because basically more than 130 40 years of faffing around has failed to Hasn't produce anything, anything which mm. is consistently provable mm. whereas when you um, look at um, and uh, you can go to the Dean Radden or whatever it's mm. the thing is you're talking to a believer there the thing is that what he talks about in his book is internally inconsistent as well. Now, for instance, paranormal powers like telepathy, clairvoyance, God knows what, they're all bundled under one term, psi, which mm -hmm. was done by um, uh, Joseph Ryan at the time, the 50s, for the purposes of simple convenience. And that's what he explained in his book as well. It's not done for because they're a lot similar. It's just basically done for convenience. And that's yeah. all. And um, uh, if you read his original book on uh, that one, you'll find that. Um, so, but the thing is, then you look at it, paranormal powers. Uh, it's one of the few human abilities, so-called, or if it's a human ability, which actually disappears with training instead of getting better. The so-called mm -hmm. decline effect. Boom. Mm -hmm. And um, so Ryan thought this was proof. Actually, it's not, because it's one of the few abilities that basically disappears upon training, which is contrary to every other human ability of around. Yeah. yeah. Second, consistent proof has never been found when you do meta-analyses. In fact, these meta-analyses, when you look at them one way, you prove it. When you look at it another way, it's disproven. It is proven, yeah. So yeah, in other words, both it's inconsistent which is useful, interesting. And in addition, if you have to use meta-analyses, which are generally very poor, uh, and uh, I consider really um, uh, um, uh, not of uh, much value. Of course, a lot of consternation in one particular term, one pain therapy uh, by um, uh, shitting all over a, a meta-analysis. And um, uh, because that was so bad. Oh, oh, oh. Anyway, but the thing is that, okay, if you do a lot of uh, controls, you find that basically uh, that's meta-analyses, that's basically grasping at straws. Second, when you consider, like, for example, uh, Dean Redden and all these other people, they say, yes, if you shield people with um, um, uh, meters thick concrete and iron re reinforcement, telepathy still works. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay. Yeah, because it's not physical, so it doesn't have any restriction. Well, yeah, there are a few things like neutrinos which can go through, but the thing is to say that human brains can detect neutrinos or other things like that. You're really grasping at straws. And so um, then, okay, then what about transmission across different things, like different places in the world? Well, if you're standing at two meters, You've got a 10 kilometer distance, yeah, 10 meter, uh, 10 kilometer horizon. If you calculate it from the uh, uh, curvature of the Earth. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, 
people more than 20 kilometres apart, uh, that has to actually go through the earth. Yeah, because it wouldn't be visible over the, the yeah. curve. <laughs> so, in other words, but again, same problems, different results from studies. Yeah. In other words, it's all very, very inconsistent. Mm. So and it seems with a lot of psi experiments, it seems that um, you only seem to get positive results from people who are more inclined to believe in its reality yeah. and you get more negative results as, as you become more sceptical. Described years ago, the will to believe. Mm -hmm. And that was described a hundred years ago about a person who wrote on this matter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's often put by proponents that perhaps um, the person's intention also has an effect on well, the psychic abilities. Well, who knows? Maybe there are paranormal abilities which we do not know about. Hmm. But in any case, the ones being tested for at the moment certainly do not exist. Haven't been found, no. Have you ever read... Um, it's the um, Galileo Commission Report by Harold Vallack. No, that's, a, that's an interesting one because it, it displays all these um, different meta-analyses and experiments that have taken place and it um, suggests that there are very strong um, statistical evidences to prove that this kind of thing, if, if it was, I think the statement that it says not verbatim is um, that if it was applied, if these statistical results were applied to any other form of science other than psi, it would be universally Except accepted as, as Oh yes, as true, I know the yeah. one. But it's. I think the problem is, is because it's based on a, a such a small effect size, but that it's consistently, uh, the effect is consistently there. It's just that it's very small. That it. it um, I, I wonder if. Maybe there is something. Maybe there is not. But in any case, you can't use it as proof of anything at the moment, because no. what is being tested is so insignificant. You can't actually use it as proof. Mm. And maybe there I, I is think something. That it's, and maybe people I think that are testing yeah. the wrong things possibly are in the wrong ways but i think it's such a taboo subject in science that you, many people don't dare touch it mm. the fear of there's been a lot of money spent on it and um the thing is that initially like with radio waves which also discovered at the same time and what a difference mm. there we yes. are but then you get into the question of if it's an, a non-physical thing do we have the ability to measure it as we would have done with radio waves because we're using physical Probably things to discover that if you can measure it it's detectable by people the initial founders of the english society of psychical research thought this is a doddle we'll be able to prove this within a few months <laughs> not so <laughs> yeah yeah that would have brought morale down quite a bit but um so there are there are other phenomena that are wanted to ask your opinion on things one of the things that i think is particularly strong evidence of some form of survival uh, nature of which we don't know obviously is uh, the phenomena of terminal lucidity oh god that one yeah yeah <laughs> the thing is that when you look at these articles by nam um uh, that's one of the main proponents of this mm -hmm. they go with rudolf smith they uh excel in the type of ignorance about brain pathology. Mm -hmm. Terminal lucidity does occur. But the thing is, you see, that what you're talking about are changes in pH, or acidity, alkalinity of the brain, mm -hmm. changes in chemical composition. And so what you actually have are severely damaged brains, 
which under certain chemical circumstances function better than at other times. And the situation their function fluctuates with the disease and now with the changes of disease. And that's the best way you can explain it. This is also done in articles on this particular type of thing in nursing homes and such like. And that's the best explanation you can have. And if they say the brains were totally damaged and such like, well, then they haul up an 1800s or early 1900s story uh, with which uh, you cannot draw any conclusions from. No. It seems that the phenomena does seem to be a lot more common than, than you'd think. I've seen a lot of um, online forums and things like that with people who who were working as care nurses and things like that who have Correct. had experience okay. with patients with dementia, which yep. I, I believe I'm not... I'm not certain, but I think dementia is essentially the um, the damage over time of, of neuronal connections or something like that. I'm not familiar. No, there are multiple no. different types of dementia. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about Lewy body dementia? Are you talking about vascular dementia? Are you talking about Alzheimer? Are you talking about um, Pick's disease? Are you talking, what are you talking about? Mm. I think the most commonly portrayed one is the Alzheimer's. That's one way. Uh, But the problem is, you see, dementia is a very fluctuating disease. As I say, the chemical environment of the brain changes. Many of these people have very poor cardiac outputs. Many of these people have other diseases. And so basically, the condition of their brains fluctuates as well with their disease. My mother was a classic. And um, uh, so uh, I've seen how this works. Basically, when she started atrial fibrillation, she couldn't remember anything. She was as dotty as anything. So once you cranked the blood pulse rate down to below 100, then she was uh, functioning semi-normally. And and she could remember again. Uh, Now, this type of thing, you haven't... When you just say, oh, yes, but they suddenly became lucid, what are you talking about? Are you saying that their body function is enough to support better brain function? Are you talking about a changing chemical environment, etc.? So, in other words, terminal lucidity is not something which is inexplicable. There are multiple causes. Also, with dementia, multiple causes as well. Mm. So, it is not something you can say they say is one particular type of phenomenon. It is not. No, it depends on how the brain's been affected by the by the and disease what and the what disease other body. Is. Yeah. I think the, the the general perception anyone would get, any layperson would get from reading things like this, is that um, that the brain has been has been severely damaged, which um, prevents lucidity. Which and then part has the been end of, damaged. Yeah, but then this is what this is what I mean when this is what the layperson would think, um, which I myself would have thought before. And um, towards the end of life, it seems that somehow the brain has managed to reconnect itself or re. Um, um, heal itself to an extent that consciousness is available and that seems rather far-fetched which is where these ideas of it's a separation occurring just before death takes place which allows for more clarity yeah but that, then, that's kind of the lay understanding of, of the phenomenon well yeah but then even that is an inconsistent viewpoint because what are you talking about you're talking about a connection between a separable consciousness which retains normal uh, personality consciousness and mental function and then between a failing body 
In other words, what you're talking about is something which is trying to control a failing body. Now, that's not going to work very well. Mm. It's like you trying to use some, uh, you've uh, thrown a spanner at your, t- a brick at your television, and uh, now and then you get a picture, and you try mm. and control it with, your, you know, with the um, uh, remote control. Now, mm. now and then mm. you'll get a picture, and now and then you won't. Mm. Similar idea. And in addition common... to which, depends on which part of the television has been hit by the brick. Yeah. Yes, true. And in what way? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. in other words, you're talking about something which is a belief, but one which, when you analyze it, is very inconsistent and very illogical. Mm-hmm. Because you're talking about multiple disease types, together with not only a brain disease, but also people who have also made multiple other problems, which also affect yes. the functioning of the brain. Mm. Especially so, folks who are going through Alzheimer's and things like that are generally old on their old age anyway, where other parts are failing. And they have other comorbidities. Mm. Heart failure, mm. very common. And mm. uh, if you crank up the blood flow, then they function better. Mm. Uh, so, Although it does, it does seem rather interesting that these um, moments of lucidity always seem to occur a day or even several minutes before death, right at the extreme of, of, and, of the dying process. Basically, what you also have is a change in acidity, alkalinity, and other aspects of brain function. So you don't really know what is happening. Mm. But in any case, it's certainly not a um, a soul trying to control a failing body. Mm. Because if it's failing, then it's it's failing. Yeah, I don't think many people see it as as a soul trying to control it. I think they see it more as the the brain trying to control the body, but the soul just kind of, or the, I don't like the word soul, there's too many implications, but the consciousness just kind of, being the passenger along for the ride, if you like. Basically, the body is the vehicle which is controlled by this consciousness. In other words, what you're talking about is a remote control system and um, uh, which is trying to work something which is failing. Mm. And that's basically... There is certainly, yeah, there is certainly some form of control there, as we know from things like the placebo effect, the way the mind can con- can control certain parts of the human oh, system. But the thing is, you've also got a nocebo effect as well. So the thing is that basically this is, uh, but as I say, the fact that you also have a consciousness which does not lay down any long-term memories, or you can prove mm. it, doesn't. Mm. Then you have something which is you're talking about, which is very different to what your original conception is. Mm. So, so what, what's what's your opinion on the um, on the hard problem of consciousness? What? Oh, you mean this crap with uh, Mary oh, the ha- yeah. and the, the color red? Well, essentially, the way I think about it is how can um, a group of atoms with an electrical charge and chemicals produce oh, qualia yeah. or consciousness? Well, basically, what you've got is a body with a function, and mm. in other words, what you've got is an operating system called consciousness which makes all the other attributes of mind possible. Now, uh, the thing is, you see that Paul Karras in the uh, Riddles of the Sphinx, I think, or something else, another book, more than 100 years ago, he stated this problem very simply. He says all the parts of the body are being replaced uh, continually, so that actually what is there originally when you're a child wasn't, isn't there when you're older. Um, mm. So in other words, what you have is function. You have form yeah. and function. And consciousness resides in that form. Yeah. In other mm-hmm. words, it's like you have a computer. You take out one, you take out uh, the video card. You ram in another one, 
and but it still works. The function still exists, yeah, because we know that our, our every cell of the body is replaced. Is it every seven years? Yeah, and so, yet the identity in this yeah still continues. Yeah. Well, how many years it is, I don't know. Anyway, but the thing is, you see that uh, turnover of different cell types is different. So, um, uh, but you actually have consciousness. Well, you can look at it like an operating system in a computer. And um, uh, the thing is, therefore, uh, why wouldn't that happen? Mm. Although, surely, there isn't an operating system initially a separate thing to the computer system? You've got the computer system, but it doesn't function unless someone puts on programs in the operating system too. If you throw a spanner in the computer, then the operating system's gone too. True. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, it's, it's just that it's that old question isn't it how does non-conscious matter produce consciousness and it's a thing I, I think we'll never really be able to I'll put it answer. this way it's the one where, which is often cited is Mary and the colour red the philosopher who actually I don't know that one uh, well Mary is raised in a room where all she is, uh, sees is black and white no other colours mm-hmm. only black and white suddenly she's how introduced boring. to the colour red Mm-hmm. And she perceives the colour red. Now, this causes a different pattern of impulses within the consciousness, etc. Well, look at it like a video recorder. Um, and with attached to a computer. Um, you throw in a red colour. Well, the pattern of signals within the computer and the video recorder are very different. Mm. So basically, this is what happens also within the brain. There's nothing stranger. If you have an operating system which actually has to be introduced gradually by one, nature, that is what you're born with, mm-hmm. that's the basic mm-hmm. layout of the brain, and nurture to um, uh, fine-tune it. Mm. So um, uh, the thing is, you see, the consciousness is not something which is really amazing. There's a group of children, unfortunate ones, that are born uh, called anencephalics. And they are born without any brain above the brainstem. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've heard of these cases, yeah. Now, what's the longest surviving one? Generally, you let them die as quick as possible because they have no life expectancy. Um, no. Oh, longest one was around 40 plus days, described in America. And. Um, uh, this particular one, he had a bit of a thalamus and hypothalamus, so he could maintain uh, body temperature, uh, and um, uh, responded to being uh, cuddled, etc. But no brain above that. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a case of someone with severe hydrocephalus? Oh, that Yeah, who turned out to be a mathematical oh, genius. Oh, oh, this is another one that is often hauled uh, up. And um, when you look at the studies of the Great Ormond Street Hospital of high people with hydrocephalus, you see that basically uh, many or half of them have a IQ above 100, even though they don't have much brain. Yeah. So it's and in fact, common. several of them have an IQ above 120. And when you look at the actual volume of the brain and what is actually done, and if you look at the volume of the brain as measured by modern techniques, you see that actually there is a fair bit of brain tissue around. More than sufficient to sustain 
intelligence, which is basically interconnectivity within neurons. So this is a story which is often uh, bandied about by many people. It's basically a congenital low pressure hydrocephalus and uh, many of people who have that, they die quickly. And the ones that don't, they live a longer life. Uh, sometimes they live shorter, sometimes longer. And there was one student of mathematics who actually was shown to be uh, hydrocephalic. And um, mm. uh, the, um, uh, there's an article published in the 50s, 40s, 60s. And um, uh, yeah, I can't remember. I got the article mm. somewhere. So there, there does seem to be some um, readable amount of, of cortical connections in there but just yeah. uh, so do, are they not detectable they are detectable hmm. so right but that doesn't form the specific structures of the brain no because the they're all um, uh, flattened out a bit because of the because they had filled with fluid and this particular mm. person that was cited and everyone cites for some reason without thinking is um uh, uh, was someone who had a, a somewhat larger skull than normal. 